Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through His Word. For more information about our church, visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to tune in to this week's message. So we are on May 1st and starting a brand new series over here the next five weeks. As we talk about miracles and the God-man who accomplished those miracles. And uh, couldn't be more excited that you're with us. Welcome to all the first-time guests. I see a lot of new faces and we're so delighted you're here with us. If you didn't receive a message card on your way in today, you can raise your hand and one of our ushers would serve you. It's just a guide to help you follow along in the Word of God today. And uh, you can just raise your hand if you desire to do so and they will certainly serve you. Uh, I want to talk today in this series of miracles. Now, the Braves need a miracle. The last World Series that we won was in 1995. I was 10 years old. It's been a long time, right? 21 years. I heard someone this week said they were going to make a t-shirt here and sell it in Atlanta that says anyone can have a few bad decades. (laughs) A long time. They need a miracle. I also know a marriage that needs a miracle. This marriage that I'm particularly thinking of is heading for the worst decision they could make. Two people can't get along. I, I can't imagine a marriage more mismatched. It's a perfectionist man with a woman who's got major dysfunction in her family. And apart from a miracle, this thing is not looking good. I've agonized, we've counseled, we've believed, we've prayed, but it needs a miracle. We all know someone, I would agree, any, any one of us in this room know of somebody in the room right now who's dying of cancer. Cancer is ravaging their body, eating their body, and the reality of it is they need a miracle. And if they don't get a miracle, they indeed will die of cancer. All of that kind of raises the question, what is a miracle? I found myself establishing this series verified on the miracles of Jesus. And, of course, it would be impossible to talk for five weeks out of 52 Sundays. We're devoting to miracles without defining what a miracle is. And let me begin by giving you a definition of a miracle that's popular but not very good at all. In fact, I would say this is a very poor definition of a miracle. Some people define miracles. I know I've heard this before in my own life. They define a miracle as when God intervenes in the world. And that's a horrible definition. It's a definition, but a horrible one. Why? Because it implies that God very seldom intervenes in the world. It implies that God is kind of a deist, if you will, the the, the, the founders of our nation, many of them were deists. They believed that God started the earth and started the world and put it on a time clock. And occasionally he might intervene personally in someone's life. Occasionally he might intervene in a situation. He, and again, that's not the truth. He actually is always intervening. Amen? He's always intervening in the world. The reason the law of gravity works is because God pulls the pencil down to the floor when it falls off the table. That's why it's pulled to the ground. It's the custom of God. God causes the wind to blow. God causes the wind to stop. We know this in the Gospels through Jesus' statement. We know God is always at work in the world. So a miracle is not when God intervenes. A miracle is when God does something unusual in the world. God does something different in that intervention. That's why the, the Puritans, the ancient Puritans who came to this great land many, many centuries ago. They, they used to say the laws of nature are the customs of God. In other words, sometimes he, most of the time he follows customs, but sometimes he doesn't. He chooses not to follow custom and do something totally different. So a miracle is not God intervening in the world. A miracle is God doing something unusual or different in that intervention. God who is always active doing something different. Take, for example, the law of gravity. I'm a science nerd. The law of physics says... The law of physics says that the buoyant force, sincerely, the buoyant force exerted by a liquid is equal to the weight of the water displaced. What does that mean? It means technical jargon to say if you put a piece of iron on top of the water, it'll sink. In other words, the iron is more weighty than the water, right? That's the law of gravity that God instituted and that God pulls that iron to the bottom. Now, occasionally, in fact, I only know one time in history, maybe more, God says, I'm going to do something a little bit different. I'm going to intervene unusual. What's the text? It's 2 Kings chapter 6 where Elijah, the great prophet, the great you know, miracle worker who did amazing signs and wonders, he's invited along to the Jordan River where the young bucks, the school of prophets, are chop- chopping down some trees and they're axing a tree and they chop it down and the axe head falls in the river and sinks to the bottom. That's the law of nature. God normally allows that iron to stay there. We know this. 
It's just the custom of God. But in this situation, God said, I'm going to do something different. And Elijah took a stick of all things, threw it in the water, and the axe head came to the top of the water, and it was retrievable. That indeed is a miracle. Now, when we think of it that way, do the braves need a miracle? Well, yes, but I don't think we would necessarily call that a miracle if the Braves won the whole World Series. We'd, we'd chalk it up to, you know, every dog gets lucky every now and again. He finds a bone. Every squirrel finds a nut, so to speak. Or maybe we get more Chipper Jones or Andrew. He, in fact, he did move back here to Cumming, Georgia, right? He's on a, our team now. We, we get Andrew Jones or Jason. Whatever the case is, we, we wouldn't call that a miracle. But putting back together this marriage I'm thinking about would indeed require a miracle. An intervention in an unusual way. If a person's on their deathbed and they're dying of cancer, a miracle is needed. But even though that's a fabulous miracle, that's not the greatest miracle as we will see. It's not. Folks, we live in an age of miracles, don't we? Miracles are everywhere. You, yeah, yeah, miracles are all around us. If you went to the university studying about 40 years, you would have realized 40 years ago that, that the university and the Western culture was obsessed with something called materialism, that everything's matter. It's an atom. And nothing more. There was no belief in the spiritual world. But now nothing could be further from the truth. Everybody believes in the spiritual world. Everybody has his or her own former brand of miracles. In fact, we are a very spiritual society. I did not say Christian society. I said spiritual, right? We all have our form of spirituality. Fact. I went to the library yesterday when we left kickball and, and uh, the bookstore and I was looking and perusing through the bookshelves and I came across one book that, that, that this lady wrote a book called A Course on Miracles. And I would never advise you to read it, but I just read through it. And she actually starts the book saying that a voice came to the lady and told her what to write. Whoa, that folks is a mishmash of demonism. And it's very prevalent in our day. In fact, this is what happened when the scriptures were recorded. The Holy Spirit moved upon men as they were moved along by the Holy Spirit to write that which God desired. And she said, yeah, you know, you can do your own miracle. There's no need to wait on someone else to do a miracle. You can be learned. You can be taught how to do your own miracle. I read another book. It's called Miracles and Wonders. I have no reason to doubt some of the things that were in there, but there were all kinds of things. One, for instance, was a phantom dog that appeared in the middle of the fog to take a family away from danger. There was another one where a silent hitchhiker, a hitchhiker leads a doctor to a silent bus crash where the kids were in danger in need of medical attention. There was another one where guardian angels get a sick child to the hospital without any car. Of course, folks, there is a proliferation of miracles in our day. They're everywhere. Every country, every place, every area of spirituality, there is miracles. I read of an article a few weeks ago of statues in a foreign country that were weeping, and the people were getting below them and taking their oil off of the weeping steel statues, marble statues, and they were using them as religious ob objects. Everyone is ultimately under the guise of religion. These proliferation of miracles under every guise of religion. So if that's the case, there's one word to start this series. Here it is. Be discerning. It's so important for us to be discerning. To discern, in fact, if you think about it, the Scripture says that the Antichrist will do so many miracles that they will be unbelievable. I will give you this point. The devil wants to do every single miracle that Christ has ever done. He wants to, every one of them to be duplicated. You say, Craig, where is that? Well, remember, one of the greatest miracles in Scripture is that Jesus Christ was resurrected. A dead man takes on new life. What does it say about the Antichrist in the last day? Revelation 13 and 3. That he had a wound unto death. But alas, the fatal wound was healed. By who? Satan. And the Bible says that the world marveled at this miracle. And they pledged allegiance to the beast, of course, when, and, and when he is able to do miracles, he does miracles that duplicate what Christ has done. Notice that. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 9, speaking of the Antichrist, look what the scripture says. This man will come to do the work in accordance with Satan. Notice that. Displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles. If you're not listening up to this point, everybody, this juncture, this is important. The next three words, look what he says. He says, signs miracles and wonders the power of signs and miracles and wonders all three of those words are used in the greek language to refer to the miracles of jesus so he will do every miracle that he's able to do like jesus in fact jesus in matthew 24 verse 24 tells us that in the last days this would happen look what he said jesus speaking to disciples and he said for false christ and false prophets will rise and in our day, they're going to show great and signs and wonders, miracles to deceive, 
if possible, even the elect. Notice that. There will be so many Christ, so many fantastic religious teachers who will work such fantastic miracles that they will, if possible, even deceive the elect. Even Christians will say it must be of God because the person was healed. Can't you hear us now? Can't you hear our nation now? The devil wouldn't heal anyone. Of course he would. Of course he would. You know what the greatest victory of Satan could be? To get someone to go to a shrine and heal them. Then everyone will go to the shrine. Come on, turn on Christian television. You've got to have a certain anointing oil or a certain type of water. And if everybody will get that water for some type of donation, then all of a sudden miracle, many false Christs, many false prophets will rise up to deceive people. There is no greater victory for Satan than for, for people to, to, to pledge allegiance to him and his deception, even through a dupl- duplicity of miracles, signs and wonders. What I want to do this morning is speak to you about the greatest miracle. Because if I were to ask you, what do you think the greatest miracle in Scripture is? And some of you immediately would say, well, it's got to be the miracle of creation. I mean, have you ever just gone outside in the middle of the night and looked up at the beautiful sky? I was in Africa a few summers ago, and there had no light pollution in the middle of Kruger National Park here in South Africa. And, and uh, we were out there with a the team. John was with us, and we looked up in the sky. And it was, I mean, you couldn't even find a black spot. There were so many stars. It was unbelievably beautiful. And I didn't know this, but experts say we can only see about a couple thousand. I thought I could see more. There are trillions upon trillions of stars. And in fact, most of them make our planet look really small. And the Bible says in creation that God created the worlds and then, oh, by the way, the stars and afternoons work. I mean, have you ever thought about this? Like, God, did you have a party that day of creation? What in the world? I mean, how much is enough, right? I mean, think about, I mean, all, you, you imagine the distance of these objects, 93 million miles away. We've got a sun that takes up 90-something percent of our solar system. Light travels 186,000 miles per second. It takes eight month, minutes to touch the earth. And, and you think about there, there are galaxies 15 billion light years away. And you're like, God, whoa, that has to be the greatest miracle, the miracle of creation, right? People say, well, I'm not really impressed with creation. Okay, well, I have an assignment for you. Go into a science laboratory and stay in there until you've taken nothing and made something out of it. That is to say, you have nothing and you make an atom, just one molecule. I suggest you take your lunch and your lunch for the next century. I was in the Griffith Observatory there in Hollywood, right up next to the Hollywood sign, and I asked one scientist, he was, I guess, agnostic more than atheist, and I asked him, he this subject of creation, of course, the Big Bang. I'm like, yep, God said bang. There it is, you know. And so I asked this guy, I asked this guy, I said, I said, so, I mean, this is a true story. I asked him, I said, so if that's not so amazing, I said, go into a room and just create something out of nothing. In Latin, theologically, we call that ex nihilo. God created out of nothing. He just, out of nothing. People say, well, that's the greatest miracle. Well, that indeed displays God's power, but it's not the greatest miracle. People say, I know what the greatest miracle is. It's a miracle of the creation of Adam and Eve. In fact, look how awesome we are, guys. I mean, you can be in church, staring at your pastor, and in your mind, be on the beach in Florida. I mean, we got amazing faculties, amazing abilities, us humans, right? I mean, you can do some crazy kind of things as humans. If the creation of the world shows the power of God, then the creation of Adam and Eve shows the love of God, the community of God. But still, that's not the greatest miracle. I don't think it's the greatest. I think the greatest miracle is the one that involves the greatest mystery. We can only rejoice in it, but we can't fully understand it. I want to take you to the most explosive verse in your entire New Testament. See, people say, I already know what that is, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten. Nope, John 3.16 can't happen unless John 1.14 happens. You say, John 1.14, what does that do? Well, John 1.14 is a verse that shattered, folks, the theological and the philosophical understanding of the then known world. If you and I sat here until the, till the day we died, we could ponder this verse and never exhaust it. In John 1.14, we're about to read it, but before that, the Bible says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, why does John use the word word? which is logos in Greek, to describe Jesus. Why wouldn't he just call him Jesus? Why did he say in the beginning was Jesus? He says in the beginning was the Word. Well, let me tell you why. Because logos in the language in which your Bible is written represents the intelligibility or what we would call the rationality or literally the purpose of God. Words convey truth and logic, right? So what is he saying? He's saying in the beginning was logic. 
And the logic was with God. And having established that, then we see the world was created by this word. In fact, Jesus spun out all of the galaxies. And we'll skip the intervening verses and come to verse 14. And notice this. And the word became flesh and made his dwelling place among us. The word became flesh. And I hate how the new NLT and NIV have taken out place because it's actually the word scam. He, he tabernacled among us. It truly is biblical to say he made his dwelling place among us. The word became flesh. Word, God of very God, literally comes to take on flesh. Folks, that is mind-boggling. Why did that shatter the prevalent views of the day? Because the Greeks, they thought God was independent of the world. God couldn't touch the world. God needed mediators. That's where angels and teachings of angels came from, the Greeks, because he needed a mediator to speak. And, and so angels and this whole theology of angels. And no, no, no. And this verse from John shatters all that. Paul shatters all that in Colossians and says, no. It pleased God for the fullness of him to dwell in Jesus in bodily form. That The word became flesh. He's now personal. He is here. He is not removed. That's why Romans 8.32, look what it says. God who gave up his only son for us. Ooh. We sometimes read scripture at a pious distance. like, But just think about what that really means. God did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. You know what that means? That God would rather not be God than be God without us. Did you hear what I said? God would rather not be God than be God without us. He gave up his only son. His son slain from the foundation of the world. He became flesh. And today, folks, can I tell you something? This verse, John 1.14, explodes right in the middle of a world that is... Falling into Islam, Muslim faith. This is, in fact, the, probably the best verse we got in terms of our conversation with Muslims. Why? Because Muslims believe that God is distant. God is removed. You can't have a personal relationship with God. God is not intervening in your situation. God is not there. There's no in, 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 in intervention on God. In fact, I was reading last night of a, a Muslim scholar. And here's what he said. He said the idea of the incarnation is the greatest tribulation a person could ever have. You're cursed if you even mention that God can become a man. But the, if you're listening today, maybe you're Muslim in the room, or maybe you have a Muslim background if you're listening to podcasts, I would tell you that we love you greatly, but here we as Christians disagree with you boldly. God became a man. God took on flesh. The Word became flesh. And then mysticism abounds, folks. I'm just trying to set you up for this month. In this day and age we live in, all the Eastern religions, everybody's God. You don't need a God. You take charge of yourself. So what does the incarnation do? What does Jesus taking on flesh do? It destroys all that and says, no, God is personal. God comes to us. But it only happened once in history. Now he's forever flesh, but it only happened once. We are not God. He is God. Long way from it. And I pity some of you who live with somebody who thinks he's God. We're not God. Why is this the greatest of all miracles? And C.S. Lewis, by the way, would agree with me. The reason why the incarnation is the greatest miracle is because it shows the creative power of God. Mary is with child without the contribution of a man's seed. That's a miracle. Not only that, it shows the... The love of God because the reason the Son of God came was to rescue us. It shows the compassion of God. It shows the purpose of God. I wish I could show you that. It shows, catch this, the humility of God. We should indeed gasp when we think about the humility of God. God becoming a baby. It shows the suffering of God because the Word would be nailed to a cross. Look, folks, the incarnation is a brilliant display of all of the attributes of God. Right there in Bethlehem. With that being established, we can then spend the rest of the five weeks talking about the miracles Jesus did. But we can't talk about the miracles he did until we realize his incarnation is the greatest miracle. He comes to the earth. The God-man is now walking. Now with that being established, I want to share with you today the, the miracle of perspective. Can you say that with me? Say the miracle of perspective. Let's read it, Mark chapter 8. You ready to read together just a few verses? Beginning in Mark chapter 8, verse 22. I'm going to read. 
Notice what the scripture says. When they arrived at Bethsaida, some people brought a blind man to Jesus and they begged him to touch the man and heal him. And Jesus took the man by the hand and led him out of the village. Notice this. Then spitting on the man's eyes, he laid his hands on him and he asked, can you see anything now? And the man looks. He's looking all around. He says, yes. I can see people, but, but I don't see them very clearly. They look like trees walking around. The Bible goes on, it says in verse 25, So Jesus again once more laid his hands on the man's eyes, and his eyes were open. Notice this. And his sight was completely restored, and he could see everything clearly. This is the miracle of perspective. I want to talk about a miracle that many of us need today. And you may have come here today and you think that I need a specific miracle. But I will tell you above your need for that specific miracle, you could use a different miracle. And it's called the miracle of perspective. The miracle of understanding. You say, Craig, what in the world do you mean? Jesus touches the blind man's eyes. In fact, he spit on him. I like that part. And the question is, does it not work? It's a fun message. He spits on his eyes and it doesn't work. I mean... It's blurry. It looks like trees walking around. No, no, no. Not only did Jesus give a man a miracle of sight, he gave him the miracle of perspective. I want to show you at the end of the message how I think he did it, how Jesus performs this. But I'm not just going to talk about this man in Mark 8. I want to talk about you. You ready? I'm going to talk about you. Have you ever looked at something before and you thought you knew all about it, but then after an occurrence events, you realize you knew nothing about what you saw? Anybody? How many of you ever thought you've known something about God or scriptural truth and you get around somebody who teaches scriptural truth in an area that you thought you knew and all of a sudden your whole perspective is completely changed? Anybody? How many of you do not answer this in the affirmative or raise your hand or nod your head if you're married? But let me ask you. How many of you on a great date night one night, you look up to heaven and you say, God, I could never ask for a greater spouse. And six months later in the midst of a knockdown drag out, you look and say, God, is this the best you could have ever done with me? Is a change in perspective. Oftentimes the miracles we ask God for are not the miracles we actually need. They're just the miracles we think we need because our perspective is not his. They're not really the miracles we need. So we're going to talk about the most important thing. What's the most important miracle? To see clearly and to know fully. What do you mean, Craig? To see clearly and to know correctly. Because if you see this one thing correctly, we're going to talk about, it affects how you see everything else. In fact, you can tell what a believer believes about God by how they perceive their situation. It's a dead giveaway of how God is viewed in a person's life by how they view their situation. And if I today, through the power of God's Spirit and the authority of His work, can help you change your perspective, it might change the very miracles you think you need in the future. It may change everything. It's a great story i got to share with you real quick. One of my favorite early church fathers, his name is Anthony. Father Anthony, Anthony of the Desert, Anthony the Great. He lived at the end of the 3rd century, into the 4th, and he was so bound up in lust at his early living that he went, and he's the father of early and modern monasticism, monks, monasteries, living as eunuchs, unmarried for your whole life. And he runs and sells everything he has and goes to the desert and lives for 50 years without interacting with anybody. Now, this man was known for fasting. This man was known for great miracles later on in his life. And finally, at the end of his life, all of these young Christians come to him. And he's now in his old age and wisdom. And they ask him a question. They said, Father Anthony, what is the greatest virtue Christians need? To know God in his heart clearly and to resist all temptation. Now, that's a great question to ask. He's in his old age. He's got the power of miracles that have been seen through his hands. And they ask him. And like any great teacher, he responds and says, well, what do you think? That's how good teachers always respond with a question. Just know that. And so they start talking, and it goes into the evening, and six hours turns into 12 hours, and they talk all through the night. And it goes into the next morning, and they talk all through the next morning, and they talk all through the next day. And he lets every one of them get every answer they got about what is the greatest virtue. And he says, okay, now I'll tell you mine. And he pointed them to Matthew chapter 6, verse 23. This is what he said, the greatest virtue for you to know the heart of God and to say no to temptation. This is what he said in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 23. He says, but if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If the light within you, Jesus speaking here on the Sermon on the Mount, is darkness, how great is that darkness? What kind of answer is that, Anthony? What's he saying? He's saying the eye is the lamp of the body and he's telling us what we need above everything else in life is moral vision. 
We've got to be able to see the way God sees. If you don't see God correctly, you can't love neighbor correctly. If you don't see your neighbor in the way God sees your neighbor, then you can't love them the way God wants you to love them. What are you saying, Craig? You can't draw close to God if you don't see God correctly. If the light in your body is darkness, how great is that darkness? So how do you make sure the light in you is light? In other words, all of your life depends on how you see what you're looking at. Oh my goodness, I hope this is making sense because all the rest of the series will not work. It depends on what you're seeing, how you're looking. What is it that you're actually looking at? In fact, the whole Christian life, folks, is this you learning step by step how to see things differently. To see the way God sees. To know the way God knows. So let me tell you why it's so important. To have a miracle perspective, two reasons. Number one, if you ask many believers what's the goal of being a Christian, here's what they say. Well, they say something like this. It's to know Jesus and to make him known, right? Like, that's a good. So if that's the truth, the goal of the Christian is to know Jesus and make him known, then it's so important that we know who he really is and not who we think he is, right? Yeah? Why? Because if the God you know isn't the God he is, then the God you make known will never be the God he wants to be known as. I got to say that again because it's 1230 and you might get hungry and sleepy. You ready? If the God you know is not the God he is, the God you make known will never be the God he wants to be known as. So it is so important what you believe about him. It is so important about your miracle of perspective. Another reason why it's so important to, to see God clearly. You ready? It's because you were made in his image. Another way to say that is this. You will never truly understand who God made you to be until you first learn to understand who God really is. (laughs) What do you mean, Craig? Who God is. How you see God affects how you see yourself. How you see God affects how you see people around you. So since it's so important, I want to give you three areas today, and I'm going to move quickly, of why you need a new perspective, a new miracle of perspective. You ready? Number one, here it is. God is holy, not boring. A lot of people think God's boring. Now, we don't consciously say that with our mouths, but if you ask a lot of Christians, they think subconsciously he's boring. We actually believe it. Here's why. Because he's holy. Because he's holy. In 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 2, Hannah makes this great declaration. She says, there is no one who is holy like the Lord. Psalm 99 and 5, exalt the Lord our God, bow low before his feet, for he is Holy. Here's a picture of his holiness in 1 John 1, 5. He said, this is the message we've heard from Jesus and now declare to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Folks, here's the dangerous thing about seeing God as boring. It's not that you just see God as boring. If you think God is boring, it's because you think holiness has to be boring. And if you think holiness has to be boring, you've already made the conclusion in your mind that the only way to be exciting is to live like hell. If you think Jesus is boring and holiness is boring, hell's the only way to have fun. And you've concluded that subconsciously. Let me give you what I think is the picture of how we believe God. We think God is over here in the corner of the universe, of the room. He's the divine buzzkill. I call him the eternal party pooper. And he's a little bit nervous like, don't have too much fun, Christians. Don't break anything in my kitchen and be miserable. Don't enjoy any of my benefits. And that's what we think, right? Now, we don't say it. That's what we think. He's boring. He's kind of scared if we have fun. No, let me tell you something. God likes to have fun. And not only does he like to have fun, he likes to have fun with you. Craig, that's a little bold. Well, let me show you the scripture. Psalm 104, verse 31. God is not the divine buzzkill. The Lord takes pleasure in all that he has made. That means that he walks around and says, <laughs> that's awesome right there. Woo. That means he likes to walk, you, walk, walk around behind you, Ryan, and say, woo, I really enjoy how you did that right there. But that was amazing right there. He loves to take joy in you. He loves to take pleasure in you. He is not uh, the divine uh, emoticon that has a negative face. Okay? He takes joy. He takes pleasure. In fact, look what Psalm 65 says. This is us gathering together in his name. 
What joy for those you choose to bring near, those who live in your holy courts. What festivities, also known as fun activities, await us in your holy temple. Church is not to be endured. Church is to be enjoyed. When you came in here today, it should be the most fun you have all day. Because why? He has festivities waiting for us. Goodness gracious, folks, the most enjoyable day and the enjoyable experience we can make. He says these await us. God loves to have fun. God loves to be joyful. Well, Craig, if God likes to have fun, what does he do for fun? Well, I'm going to give you my proponent or perspective. Now, when he has some free time, He's not dealing with my sins, which are pretty much a full-time task. He's not dealing with my shortcomings. Then here's what he likes to do. He likes to mess with you. Is that King James? No, that's just Craig. Let's just keep going. Because look what the Bible says about messing with you. Next verse. If you faithfully answer our prayers with awesome deeds, our God, our Savior, you're the hope of everyone on earth, even those who sell on distant seas. Folks, get, let this get down in your spirit. Verse 6. You formed the mountains by your power. You armed yourself with mighty strength. You quieted the raging oceans with their pounding waves. You silenced the shouting of the nations. Those who live at the ends of the earth stand in all of your wonders from where the sun rises in the east to where it sets in the west. You, God, inspire shouts of joy. Folks, if I could give you a biblical definition of messing or jacking, here's what it is. It's to render you speechless by the works of his hand and the words from his mouth. His favorite activity is to watch your face and your jaw drop when he acts on your behalf and he wants to watch you be astounded by the works of his mighty hands and the powerful, loving, potent words from his mouth. In fact, this is on every page. Every page of Scripture, he likes to do this. He takes such joy in this. Moses, hey, brother, get out of the desert. You've been there 40 years. Go deliver two and a half million people out of bondage. Okay, all right. Where do you want us to go, Red Sea? Okay. Two and a half million people falling behind him, marching. Every time he's marching, I believe with all my heart, he's thinking in his mind, when is the divine GPS going to come and say, recalculating, recalculating, turn left. Recalculating, recalculating, turn right. And the command never comes. So he walks right up to the edge of the Red Sea. He's got an immovable object in front of him. And he says, God, what in the world were you thinking? Do you not hear the people that are pursuing to kill us? You brought me to an immovable obstacle. Why in the world would you do this? And I just believed, that's just my version, but I just believe God said to him in that moment, the reason I did it, Moses, is because I love and one of my favorite things to do is to watch the look on your face when my power and when my faithfulness come together on your behalf I like to watch your jaw drop open because I have a hobby to render you speechless at the works of my hands and the words of my mouth and listen they cross over on the Red Sea and they get to the other side and the waves come crashing down and dismantle all the chariots and all the bodies wash up on shore and I believe that God looks at Moses and says that was fun let's do it again you ready and then all of a sudden a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire comes and this is what God loves and so many times we think God just loves the destination folks no 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 if it took 70 years for two and a half million people to go 40 miles that should tell you that God's more concerned about who you are when you arrive there when when you get there that God takes pleasure in forming you and molding you and shaping you and transitioning and doing all this leading in your life that's what fires God up and God says I want to render you speechless at the work of my hands and the words from my mouth if you think God is boring you need a miracle of perspective he's not boring number two we think God is distant but the point is no he is very near not distant people think God is distant well no I don't Craig the Bible says that God will never leave me nor forsake me well, you've heard that, but do you know that? Isn't that a difference? He will never leave us nor forsake us. Now, I know you've heard that. I know you've read that, but do you know that? How many of you have ever asked God for something and his response seemed a little bit delayed? Okay, if you didn't raise your hand, either you never pray or you just lied. <laughs> We've all done it. Listen, ready, ready? Many of us measure God's distance from us 
by the amount of time it takes for Him to respond to our request. See, we think the longer He takes to respond, the further away He is. Here's the problem with that. I might be doing something that negatively affects how clearly and how quickly I hear His response. See, just because it takes him a little bit longer uh, than I expected to respond doesn't mean it took him that long to respond. It just means I had some spiritual earwax that elongated the process, complicated the process. In fact, the time in Scripture where God is embracing the son, the prodigal son, is the time where he says no words to the son. Go back and read Luke 15. He doesn't say one thing to the prodigal. He says it to the older and the servants to go get the fatted calf. And sometimes you mistake God's silence for his distance, but maybe he's got you wrapped around his arms and he's too close to speak. Maybe he's wrapped you up. See, sometimes we think that because our prayers are delayed in response that he is distant. It is not true, folks. God's not distant. He's right there with me. But have you ever wondered why sometimes it feels like he's so far away? Like, God, you never leave us nor forsake us. But he feels so far away. Well, the answer is very simple. Ready? Get this picture. Imagine this podium is God. And I'm not trying to pull an Aaron and a golden calf here. But just imagine for a minute this is God. So here we are, walking with God, hand in hand. He will never leave us nor forsake us. Here we are. What does the Lord require of you? To love justice, seek mercy, and walk humbly. So I'm walking. God, you're never going to leave me. You're right by my side. Yep. Through thick and thin. Yep. Here's what we do. Why, God, does it feel so distant sometimes, even in the midst of your promise, that you're never, ever going to leave us nor forsake us? Here's why. God, where are you? I'm right here. You're supposed to be close. You said you'd be close to me when I went through the, oh, I am, I'm closer. And you can even realize. No, 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 God, you said you would be foreseeable. I, I would know, I walk by faith, but, but God, I know in this moment you'll never leave. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm right here, I'm close. Listen, 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 listen. Anytime you make your life about living your way, it always seems as though God is far out of the way. But here's the beautiful illustration. What's the definition for repent? To turn. Woo, there he is. So it may not be that he's left you nor forsaken you. It may be that you have tried to do life your own way. You've tried to do it your own instance and your own, uh, your own prerogative and your own ability. And God says, turn. And in turning, then all of a sudden you realize it was you that had turned your back and not him. If you think God is distance, just turn. In fact, the distance between you and God is measured in repentance. Turning. Just turning. You're clean, you're close, you're dirty, you're distant. It may mean you're trying to do life your way. What does it look like that God never leaves us nor forsakes us? I've told this story before, but I'll tell it once more. Many, many years, uh, about a year and a half ago, before we moved to Woodstock, my wife and I were living in a house in Cleveland. And uh, I get up before my kids many days, and my wife, and they're getting up earlier and earlier. I think the older they get, I thought it would be the opposite, but... I was up early before my family this day. One of the things I like to do is to go into my kids and I pray for them because I do nighttime normally and then I do morning time, you know, because I'm leaving. Marriage with them, of course, homeschooling during the day. So I got up this one particular morning. I walked into my Marley girl's room. My Marley girl's, she's our wild child. She had her, di she was still young at the time. She had her diaper off laying in her crib and she had her blanket called her Moe hanging off the side. And she just passed out, right? And I walked into her room, and the first thing I like to do is I just like to pray over them. So I walked into the room. It was still very dim. Lights are off. And I just began to thank God. I said, God, out of all the daddies in the world, thank you so much that you chose me to be her daddy. And I was just crying. And God, she's everything I could ever dream of. And thank you so much for this wonderful daughter. And then I just started praying in the spirit, right? And about 30 minutes passes, and I'm, a, I'm just a sobbing mess. And the Spirit of the Lord spoke to me. I'm just gushing over her, right? The Spirit of the Lord spoke to me and said, Craig, do you realize every morning before you wake up, I walk into your room and I look over your bed and I gush and I gush and I just thank God and I just wait for you to open your eyes and tell me that you love me. He is not far. He is more near than you could ever realize. Psalm 139, verse 17 and 18, this is what David said. When I think about your thoughts towards me, Pastor Chad just quoted up here, they out 
outnumber the grains of sand on the seashore. That's a lot. If God can't exaggerate and God can't lie, one cubic foot of sand is 1.8 billion grains of sand. Well, there's a lot more than one cubic foot of sand on this earth. So God has multiplied billions of thoughts towards you every moment of every day, yearning for fellowship with you, yearning to be near you, yearning to be close to you. This is our God. He is not distant. He's very near. And if you think he's distant, you need a miracle of perspective. My son, yesterday we were driving to the ballpark, or the park, and we turned off in Kennesaw, and I said, son, you don't like daddy traveling too much, do you? Thankfully, in this season, I haven't much. He said, no, I don't. I said, but listen, son, I, you know from daddy's commitment, I've committed to coach your teams. I've co- coached just about every team he's played in sports this far, so I haven't missed too many. But I missed his very first baseball game that he ever played. He's only three years old. He had number 12. Moss Grove was bigger than his whole shirt, you know. Big old baggy pants looked like parachutes, and I was in, I think it was in I may have been in Brazil at the time. And my wife texted me pictures. And I got these pictures. And I'm just thinking, I'm ready to eat this kid up. Right? Just, I mean, just so cute. And I asked him, I said, uh, Daddy's going to do all that he can you know, to keep watch your games. And he, he gets a little bit upset if I would ever miss the game. And I thought about it. Have you ever wondered why God is omnipresent? That means he's everywhere at all times. See, I think a lot of times we, we think it's because he wants to play eternal police officer. Like, I want to catch every Christian in every act. No, no, no. I think God's omnipresent because he don't want to miss one moment of your games. Because if he weren't omnipresent, that means for him to be at my game would mean he'd miss your game. And he is not interested in missing your game. He's in fact not interested in missing one moment of your life. He is not far. He is near. He's near. But thirdly and finally, God is all loving, not perpetually angry. He's all loving. Many people think God is angry. Many people think God needs divine plastic surgery. Botox shots to relax his wrinkles. Because his furrowed brow is looking at the earth ready to destroy it with a mallet. We think this. We don't communicate it. We think it. Remember, if this is the way we see God, it affects everything else in our life. Miracle of perspective. We think he's perpetual anger. Now, why do we believe God's so angry? Is it because we read the Old Testament and see where his fire consumes people at Korah? Is it because we've read a scripture where in one moment of time God was angry and then we've convinced ourselves he's perpetually angry? Is it because we read scriptures like Proverbs 6, 16, 17, 18, and 19 where the Bible says that six things the Lord hates, no seven things he detests. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that kill the innocent, a heart that plots evil. Feet that race to do wrong, a false witness who pours out lies, a person who sows discord in a family. Here's my question. Do you see God as angry because of your perspective or because of your behavior? Oh, I knew it, Craig. I knew it. You just confirmed it. I knew God hated me when I sinned. I knew it. Now you just confirmed it. Thank God I'm going to leave. That's the only thing I heard today. God hates me. He detests me when I sin. I understand that. I proved you proved it to me. No, no, I did not. Go back to verse 16. There are six things, 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 not six people, things, 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 six, not types of people, six things, things, things he detests. He does not detest people. He does not detest us. He does not detest personalities. There are six things the Lord hates. Proverbs 15 and 9. Look at the Bible says. The Lord detests the way, not the the person of the wicked, not the path. He says the way of the wicked, the Lord detests. What are you saying, Craig? I'm saying God is not indeed perpetually angry with us. My son and daughter, I was telling the early gathering, I feel like in this season right now, my wife and I are going to need to wake up our kids and just bring them in our bed and lay them over. And just go ahead and give them like five spankings to start the day, okay? It's just like, let's just go ahead and do, like, get ahead of the game. You know what I'm saying? So, because I mean, I feel like I'm spanking them all the time. Knox, yesterday, bad attitude, spank him one time. He did the same thing back. I dropped the britches again, spanked him again. Walked into the kitchen. He did the same thing again. I dropped the britches. And I finally get to say, son, you are going to have to learn, right? You're going to have to learn. And I asked him a couple weeks ago. No joke. This is a true story. I asked him. I said, I'm, you know, he was on a hot streak. Your kids ever on hot streaks? So you really need to put him in your lap. And I'm loving on him and telling him, Daddy loves you. Daddy, you're a son of God, a disciple of Jesus Christ. You're going to make disciples a whole life. I mean, this is why Daddy's training you, raising you, Mom and Dad, for this purpose. And I'm just telling him. And I said, son, here's what my son said, right? He's my firstborn. He's just like me. So I have to try to train him to not be like me. (laughs) So I said, son, 
You know why daddy spanked you? And he said, because you don't like me. <laughs> and the honorary side of me wanted to say, how did you figure it out? How did you know that? I said, son, I don't spank you because I don't like you. The Bible says I, don't, I spank you because I love you. You got to understand, son, if I didn't spank you, then that means I wouldn't love you. And I don't care about you. And I don't want you and your behavior to affect everybody else. So, son, I love you. But this is what happens, folks. We believe sometimes in our life, it's just honestly, we believe because of the amount of spankings that we're getting, which are more than we like, uh, we would like from God, we become convinced that he spanks because he's angry. We become convinced that he chastens because he doesn't love us. No, if you think God is always angry, I'm going to give you one verse, and you can use this verse to forever fight that wrong mentality. Here it is. Isaiah 57, 16. For I will not fight against you forever. You, I will not always be angry. If I were always angry, all people would pass away. All souls I have made. Craig, how do you know God isn't always angry? The answer is simple. Because you're still breathing. I will say it again. You're living right now. And if he was angry, you'd be dead. That's what the scripture said. So if you're living, you're, he's not angry. He's not got a furrowed brow. Okay? He's looking with open arms. You're breathing. You have breath. You have life today. Proof. He's not angry. He's not angry. Let me give you an equation in conclusion that will hopefully change your life. You ready? Simple equation. Ready? Here it is. A plus B equals C. Wait, that didn't go over like I thought. A plus B equals C. Let me explain. A, ready? Exhibit A, 1 John 4, 7. Notice what the Bible says. Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. For God is, God is, exhibit A, God is, exhibit A, God is, exhibit B, Psalm. 139 verse 7, 8, 9, and 10. I can never escape your spirit, God. I can't get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I go down to the grave, you're there. If I ride the wings in the morning, if I dwell by the farthest oceans, even there your hand will guide me. Your strength will support me. That means God is everywhere. Exhibit A, God is. Exhibit B, God is. Exhibit A, God is. Exhibit B, God is. Which equals C, God's love is everywhere. There's not a place God's love is not present. Let me give you another way to say that. That may be ingrained down in your memory today. You ready? Let me say it. Everywhere you think or expect God's anger to be, God's love already is. <laughs> everywhere you think or expect His anger and His madness and His distraughtness to be, His love is already there. Every time you fall in mistakes and you think you're going to come to a God, who's angry let me tell you something there's something deeper than his anger and it's his love his love is always deepest his love is everywhere everywhere every relationship every situation his love is present God is not angry God is all loving and what happens is you might be here today begging God for a miracle and it's entirely possible that what God is hoping is that you get his perspective. So look right here as I close. This is how I think Jesus may have given this man perspective. Jesus takes the blind man, he lays hands on his eyes. Can you see now? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, God, I can see, I can see people, but not clearly. It looks like, uh, looks like trees are walking around. Well, the question is, did it not work the first time? Did Jesus not have power? No, no. Because the man's problem was his perspective. So here's what Jesus did. He laid his hands on him again. And my personal opinion, this time he took his hands and he put them on both sides of his face. 
and he aligned the blind man's face right onto his face and he touched his eyes and he said can you see now and for the first time in his life he saw clearly because he saw Jesus closely oh my God I'm going to say it again you can only see clearly when you see Jesus closely and the man's perspective is now head on to the creator God the maker the redeemer the Messiah the son of God and he says can you see now yes Lord I can see clearly yes Lord the first time he's looking all around don't we do that we look all around and the next time his focus is on the one Jesus Christ and he says I can see Lord I can see clearly listen folks if you don't get the miracle perspective today nothing else you see matters all of it will be tainted all of it will be out of a line because what you see and how you see God determines how you see everything else and I know some of you in this room today you're facing difficult situations but I'm encouraging you that you need a miracle of perspective you might be facing a divorce that literally ends next week I want to tell you to stop staring at an unresponsive spouse and start staring at a completely responsible God. You may be in this room today and you have a situation where you have no idea where to turn. You don't know left from right, A from B, C from D. You don't know where to turn in your family, your situation. Let me tell you, stop staring at what you don't know and start staring at a God who has never been out of the know. You're in this room today and you think, Craig, I'm staring at impending bankruptcy. I'm going to have my bank accounts closed. I'm going to lose my house. Stop staring at a number that you don't have and start staring at a God who's never seen a number he didn't have. You might be in this room today and you say, I got a horrible report from the doctor this week. I got disease in my body or cancer in a family member. Stop staring at a doctor who can't stop staring at your charts and start staring at a God who can't stop staring at your face, who keeps looking at you and loving you and embracing you and pulling you and reaching to you. You're in this room and you say, I got so much sin and a pile of sin. I can't lift my hands, much less lift my eyes to Lord because of this pile of sin. Stop staring at a pile of sin that you don't think he can forgive and start staring at a God who's already demonstrated by his death and resurrection that he sent a son to forgive you of all of that sin. Folks, the whole key to the rest of your life is to not keep your eyes on things that are changing, but to fix your gaze on the one who never changes. I'm going to keep my eyes on you. I'm looking at you, Jesus. You're not distant. You're very near. You're not angry. You're all loving. You are not far away from me. You are right next to me, oh God. You are not a God who is who is angry at me. You are a God who loves me intimately, loves me dearly. If you see something today you don't like, you need a miracle of perspective. And so many of us started a miracle series thinking I've got this one miracle I need Jesus to meet. And the greatest miracle you can have today is to see Jesus. See Jesus. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you'd like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. God bless you.